God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear. For perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Wow, it has been an incredible morning already, and um, I've got to be really careful because I'm on the verge. I, that, wow. God is so good. And uh, amazing, amazing. I'm ready to just do a cannonball right now, right into this. It is good to have you with us uh, here in the room. Those of you with us online in Skagit, in Belize, and from wherever you're coming from, so glad that you're with us. If you were with us last weekend, you know that we are in week one of a 21-day season of prayer and fasting. If you were not here last weekend, um, I would encourage you to go back and uh, watch or listen to last weekend's sermon as we launched into this. And it's not too late to join us in whatever degree, small or large, that you would like to. One of the things that we're providing for you this, this year is a, a devotional, 21 days uh, devotional, one for each day of this of this season, written by people from our church. And, um, and so you can still join in on that. You don't have to wait till next year. You can get that. Those are available online on our website, also with our app. And very cool, it's on the YouVersion uh, Bible app that uh, you can go to plans, type in Cornwall Church, and it will come up. Here's kind of a cool thing. We mentioned last week that, that this is available on YouVersion 2,331 people have downloaded it from YouVersion, uh, which is pretty cool to have that many of us doing this together, unifying, reading the same scripture each day and hearing the devotion, reading the devotional on that. So we'd love to have you join us in that. Also, at 3.30 a.m. or p.m., many of us have an alarm set to remind us of the scripture found in John 3.30 that we've been praying, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So love to have you be a part of that. I want you to know, those of you who are participating, that I've been praying for you every day. Our elders have met twice this week. We've been praying for you as a church. And for some of you, this is your first experience with fasting, praying that God meets you there, praying that God saves us from legalism and wrong motives and pride and discouragement. And if you've had a little struggle with it, I would encourage you to get back in there and try. And uh, we're continuing to just seek Jesus together. So very excited about this season for us as a church. Now today we're going to start a brand new series that's going to take us clear up until until Easter. So we're going to be in this series for a few months. Before we get into that, I want to give you a little bit of a, a little bit of a picture of my history and then kind of a maybe a not so pleasant um, view of, of a future that hopefully will not happen. All right, 29 years ago, January of 1993, it was half of my life ago. I'm 58. 29 years ago, I was 29 years old. So it was half of my life ago. 29 years old, January of 1993, 
Um, here at, at this church, I was a youth pastor here. Our beloved senior pastor who had been with us, he was a great leader, he was an incredible preacher, he was a wonderful shepherd. He had left, God had called him to a church in Florida, and here we were, under his leadership. He had been here for, I don't know, nine or 10 years under his leadership. Everything had, had just been, continued to grow. Our, our attendance grew, our budgets grew, our staff grew, and he left. And then when we were left kind of like with this uncertainty, what's the future look like, what's gonna happen, our, our leader, is gone, and they, they asked me to fill in until they got the new guy. Some of you still waiting. I, in some of your minds, I'm still the interim pastor. I get that, 29 years, and some of you are going, would they finally get, anyway. So, 20, so I'm, I'm this young 29-year-old guy, doesn't know anything about being a, a senior pastor, and, um, and so we're starting this new year, 1993 at the time. I went back in my files, um, and found this is, this is what we used to use, the, the, the bulletin that we used to use. And, and these are my sermon notes from that January of 1993. My sermons were much shorter back in those days. <laughs> thank you. I, I'm glad that you're clapping that I've grown. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mom. All right, so, um, so I was looking at this, um, and I was looking at what was I preaching 29 years ago? And the sermon was based on that part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, you can build your house on the rock or the sand. And the title of the sermon was The Solid Life. And the whole, uh, the whole point of the sermon was that our lives are not built on a leader except Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the foundation of our life. Jesus, more than anything else, is the foundation of our life. And that's what we build on. Because anything and everything else will eventually fail you, let you down, or disappoint you. Jesus alone. And my prayer is that for the last 29 years, I've been preaching that same message, because that's the message I'm gonna preach this morning, different from that one, but same bottom line. Now, that's kind of some history. Let's fast forward 29 years from now. That was 29 years ago. 29 years from now, if the Lord tarries, what if? At that point, I'm 87. At that point, I have three hairs pulled back into a ponytail. At that point, I'm on an island for the remainder of my days. And what if at that point, 29 years from now, as 87, I hear that they finally got the new guy? <laughs> and that, that there's a new pastor that came to Cornwall Church, and he brought in some new staff and some new elders. And unfortunately, he brought in some new teaching some teaching that wasn't right. And we're not talking about just disputable matters where there's some doctrinal differences amongst denominations. We're talking about foundational truths that if you can to, to tear away the very foundation of Christianity, saying that Jesus was not God, saying that Jesus was not the only way to the Father, saying that Jesus was, had not atoned for our sin, saying we couldn't really be sure about our salvation. And in addition to that, the way he handled things as a pastor, as a shepherd, he and his staff were, were harsh, almost like spiritual bullies and, and taking advantage of people and, and causing a great deal of discouragement and division. And in the midst of it all, he eventually left and took a bunch of the people with him, leaving what was left in this church of people who are doctrinally and theologically confused, spiritually discouraged and maybe complacent, like saying, why do we even try this? And with all kinds of relational difficulties. And I'm 87 years old on the island and I hear about this. And something within my heart is just broken. This church that I love, that I, I, I shepherded, that I poured myself in, that was a part of me, that's, that's my family, has been, has been ruined. Now I pray that that doesn't happen. 
But that hypothetical that I just painted for you is the exact setting that caused the writing of the book that we're gonna study. There was a man who was a pastor, and he was late in his 80s, maybe even his early 90s, and he was on an island, and he hears about the church that he had pastored for many years. And he hears that some people, some false teachers had come in and had messed with their doctrine and their theology, and it said Jesus wasn't God, and there was all of this confusion about their salvation, and they were spiritually discouraged, and they had lost their zeal and their fire and their passion for Christ. And there had been this relational division and, and dissension. In the midst of all that, he said, I, I've got to do something. And so he writes a, like a document a pamphlet. He writes out what he would do to try to correct this, to, to get them back on track theologically, to, to, to inspire a, a fire and a fervor for Christ and the kingdom of God, and to bring about love and unity back into the church. And in this document, at the end of it, he writes these words. We find them in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to have confidence. I want you to know what you believe, and I want you to know what it is that is truth. That document is a book in the Bible we refer to as 1 John. It's a small little book. It's got five chapters in my Bible. It's only three and a half pages long because that's a pretty small font, but it's, it's very small. And it's way in the back of the New Testament. And it, while we quote things from it, it's often overlooked. It, it doesn't give us, get as much attention. And, and part of it probably is because usually when you're in that part of the New Testament, way in the back, this little book is obscure because it hangs in the shadow of this beautiful, giant, mysterious book called the Book of Revelation, and usually when people go to the back of the New Testament, they're going to the Revelation for whatever reason and skip right over this book. It's the book of 1 John. And while it's small, while it's obscure, while it's tiny, there is such a depth of deep, rich theology in this book about the, the centrality of Christ, the, the divinity of Christ, the, the life of Christ. And yet, at the same time, it's not just a treatise on theology. There are these challenging practical applications about how to, how to live a life of love, how to live in the light, how to avoid sin, how to follow and walk in the ways of Jesus, how, how, to, how to be the people that, that God created us to be. And maybe it's because of this, this combination of, of deep theology and practical application that years ago, St. Augustine said this about the book, 1 John. He said, first John should constantly be in the mind of God's holy church. And so for the next three months, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dig into this book, we're gonna tear it apart, we're gonna find some incredible truths of theology, we're gonna find some incredible applications for our life, and we are going to learn and know this book. So today, what I wanna do is really kinda give you a, a little, a brief kind of a, a backdrop of why the book was written, who wrote it, to whom, and those kind of things. And then I want us to look into the first four verses of this book. It's kind of the introduction, just kind of the introductory remarks. I want us to, to spend our time there, and, uh, and then we'll continue on for the next several months. Now, one of the things that I often do when we start a study of a book is that I will point you to um, an incredible way to get a, a quick overview and some insights on that book. And I will do that again today and I would encourage all of you to do this, if not right now, but if you Google these words, read scripture, one John, 
If you Google those four words, it will bring up a video from the Bible Project out of Portland. These, these people do incredible jobs with this. And it will talk about kind of an overview of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, about nine minutes long, really, really good, simple to understand, very well done. So I would encourage you to do that. Google those words, read scripture, number one, John. Hopefully you got that down. My mom was texting me last night. What were those words again? Memory loss. All right. The second thing is this. Whenever we go into a book study, there's always about two of you. Two of how many thousands? Two of you say, I really want to get into the deep, the nitty gritty. The... Now, this is not for the majority of you. I'm just telling you that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend this for the majority. But for those two or three of you who say, give me the really, really, you know, all the minutiae, the details on that. I'm using about four different commentaries, but the one I would recommend for this study is called The Story of God Bible Commentary by Constantine Campbell. So for both of you who are wanting that, this is the one I would recommend for you on that. Again, for the majority of you, I would say don't, don't worry about that. We'll just kind of dig into it. So let me do this. Let me spend some time briefly giving you kind of the background, the backdrop of why this was even written. Who wrote it? When was it written? You know, who was it written to? Where was it written from and to and why? And I will say this, there are those that, that don't fully agree with all this. What I'm gonna give you is, is what the vast majority of Bible scholars and church history would generally accept as the truth about these questions, okay? Now I'll say, it's not 100% agreement, but this is generally agreed upon. Who wrote this book called John? I'll give you a guess. John. Now this is important. John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's a part of the small group. I mean, he was one of them. That's like John. Not only was he one of the 12, but he was one of Jesus' like inner circle, like his quad. You remember the Peter, James, and John. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, also nicknamed the sons of thunder, that John. This is the John who is most believed the youngest disciple of all of them. He's the one that in the Gospel of John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a great name if you're writing about yourself. <laughs> He's the disciple. This is the John when Jesus is dying on the cross and he sees his mother and he says to her, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He says, John, take care of mom for me. I, I want you to take care of mom for me. This is John. Now John has written other books in the Bible and this is where it gets really confusing. He wrote the Gospel of John early on, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Those of you who are not familiar with this, is, this is where he gives his, his account of the life of Jesus. It's the Gospel of John. But then what we're talking about, there are these three little books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This can be really confusing. It's kind of like when George Foreman names his sons. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. George Foreman, the heavyweight boxer, had five sons. He named all five of them George Edward Foreman. Couldn't come up with other names? Too many shots to the head? I'm not sure what the deal is. He said he wanted them all to have something in common. Well, there it goes. So, so John writes these books, and apparently he's not big on titles, because there's John, and then there's 1st John, and then there's 2nd John, and then there's 3rd John. And it can be a little confusing. And, and I will say this, one of the reasons why most people believe that that John, the Apostle John, wrote this book, even though he doesn't say so in the writing, as we'll see, is because of the similarities between the Gospel of John 
and 1 John and some parallels, which I'll point out today. And my prayer is this, that it doesn't get confusing because there's gonna be a little bit of toggling back and forth between the Gospel of John and 1 John. Some of you are already lost. And I apologize for that. We'll try to keep going with that. So John writes this book. And he wrote it probably in the year 90, you know, 90 AD. Um, and most likely, he has been exiled to an island. After the, the destruction of the temple in, 70, uh, in, in, in AD 70 under Titus, later, uh, Domitian becomes the Roman emperor. And there's a great deal of persecution against the church. And one of the things that church tradition would say, and church history would say, is that John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos was a small, rocky, barren island out in the Aegean Sea, and he's out there. There's a question about how long he was out there. Uh, just for, for a point of, of reference, it's a little bigger, for those of you from Whatcom County, it's a little bigger than Lummi Island. Lummi Island's like nine and a quarter square miles. Uh, Patmos was about 13 square miles, so a little bigger than Lummi Island, and he's out there. If, you, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, Robben Island in South Africa, where Nelson Mandela was kept, same kind of deal. There were mines out there, they were in harsh labor. So John is exiled to Patmos. I'm, see, I'm getting into way too many details, I, but I love this stuff, okay. But before that, he had been the pastor of the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches of Ephesus. Now, if you were with us in the Acts series, you remember Acts Chapter 19, Ephesus, Artemis, the, the, the riot that took place. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus. Timothy was placed as the bishop over Ephesus. And then later, John becomes the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And no doubt, during his time as pastor for them, he shared them with them, if the Gospel of John had not been written at that point, he would have obviously been sharing with them the ideas behind the Gospel of John. That's why you see this similarity. I think he's like, guys, I taught you this stuff. I'm reminding you of these things. They're primarily a Jewish church would have had a lot of understanding about Old Testament. So he writes this document, and it's not really a letter. Because it doesn't start off like Paul's letter. You know, I, Paul, a servant of Christ or a prisoner for the Lord. He doesn't start off with any of those kind of, you know, salutations. And there's no specific greetings to any individual people. It's more like he writes out a sermon and sends it to them. That's a bit of the background. Now, some of you have checked out. Should we get into the book? Okay, so it's not the Gospel of John. It's 1 John, and he just like jumps right into it. It's like this, this stark, abrupt beginning. He there's no introductory remarks, no opening jokes, no, hey, how you guys doing? He just goes after it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he starts this way. That which was from the beginning. Okay, here we go. All right. That which was from beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. One more little uh, rabbit trail for those of you who are interested. There had been some false teaching that had been brought into the church, and that's what he'll be combating against the entire uh, the entire document. There's uncertainty of whether it was Gnosticism, Docetism, or Separatism. Now, I could talk for hours right now, but I won't. Let me just quickly put it down into a little eggshell. Gnosticism basically has this belief that anything that's material, physical, anything here is fallen, it's sinful, it's broken, it's evil, it's wicked. Anything that is spiritual is good, it's holy, it's pure. And because of that, 
nothing physical and nothing spiritual could ever come together, which caused all kinds of other issues. But the rationale was Jesus could not be human like flesh and blood and divine. He could be one or the other. If he was divine, he could not be human. If he was human, he could not be divine. That may have been the controversy. Docetism comes along, and this may have been the one. Docetism says, no, 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 no. Jesus is God. There's no question about it. He is God, and because he is God, he appeared as a man, kind of an apparition, kind of an avatar, kind of a, a, a hologram. He, uh, he appeared to be a man, and Docetism would say, when Jesus would walk, walk along the Sea of Galilee, he would leave no footprints which is cool, except it really messes with your footprints in the sand poem that you've got on your decoupage plaque. All right. I saw one set of footprints, and then there were none. All right, so. And then there was separatism. Separatism said Jesus was definitely a human, flesh and blood human, and at his baptism, when the Spirit descended on him like the dove, that, that somehow there was a divine infusion into him at that point, not before, but at that point, up to that point, he's just a normal man like anybody else. At that point, there's some kind of a divine infusion onto him, and right before he's crucified, that divine infusion is taken out of him because you can't kill God. And it's these kind of controversies that may have caused all of the confusion about who Jesus was. And right off the bat, in the very first verse, John just attacks these things and he talks about the pre-existence and the physical existence of Jesus. A both and. Like he says, that which was from the beginning. Not the beginning of his ministry and not the beginning of Bethlehem and Christmas story. Not, not the, no, like in the beginning, God created kind of beginning. Like from the very start. That which was from the beginning. In Genesis chapter one, verse three, it says, and God spoke and he said his words, the word, the logos, let there be light, that God created with the word. Now, this is where I hope that I don't confuse you, but I want you to see that John's kind of coming back saying, guys, I taught you this, you know this. Because in the gospel of John, chapter one, he says, he wrote these words. In the beginning, see the similarities here? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So, I, I, I taught you these things. I, I wrote these things down. That which was from the beginning. You remember the word. You know, Paul would come back to this in, in, in Colossians when he would say that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, so for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, rulers, kings, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That Jesus, let's not be, let's not be um, misunderstood, uh, understanding this, Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is divine. He didn't start in the year zero when he was born. He didn't even start nine months from that earlier when he was conceived. He always was. He was before all things were created. He created from the very beginning. He says, don't ever sway from that. And, and, he was completely human, flesh and blood. It was not an either or. It was a both and. Because he points that out as well. Back to 1 John chapter 1. Verse one, that which is from the beginning, the eternal divine Jesus, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Remember who's writing this? John's saying, I was there. You remember? I was one of the disciples. I heard him. The Sermon on the Mount deal, I was there when he gave the Beatitudes. I heard him for the first time. Blessed are the poor in spirit for those. I was there. The parables that we tell, I heard him tell them the first time, and I heard him repeat them, but I heard him the first time. I heard those with my own ears. That, that The times where he would say, I am the bread of life, I am the way, I am the door, I am the, the good shepherd. I, I heard all those I ams. I heard those things. The things he said on the cross, I heard, I was there, I heard those. That last, last, uh, last Supper discourse in, in John chapter you know, uh, 13 through 17, I was in that room. Guys, I heard these things myself, and I saw them. I saw what happened. I saw when he turned water into wine. I saw when he walked on water. We'll never forget that one. Freaked us out. I saw the blind man see for the first time. It was amazing. The lame that walked. Lazarus came back from the dead. I saw these things with my own eyes. And I didn't just hear him, and I didn't just see him, and it wasn't just a hologram. I, t- I touched him. You know, I grew up in church. We used to sing, he touched me. Oh, he touched, anyone remember that one? Okay, shackled by, okay. John's singing, I touched him. Oh, I touched him. He said, I, I, I touched him. If Jesus was some kind of an avatar, if he was some kind of an apparition, if he was kind of a, a hologram, you know that if Peter found that out, he would forever be going, guys, watch this. Hey, Jesus, yeah, watch this. Look, he's not really here. Like, Peter would just stop that. He's not, he's in, listen, he was flesh and blood. We touched him. He touched us. He washed my feet. I felt his hands on it. And after he came back from the dead, after the resurrection, we touched the nail prints. We touched the scars. We were there. We ate with him. I'm telling you, I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. He was human. And there is no question, he was God. So don't be confused on this. And it's like he points out the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus. This incarnation that that the word, as he says in John 1, again, toggling back and forth, the word became flesh and dwelt with us, dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father. And we touched him even after his resurrection. A human, but what he did can only be described as divine. I'm telling you, I don't care who your pastor has been. I don't care what kind of confusing arguments he's used. I don't care how he's twisted words. I don't care how he's said whatever. I am telling you, Jesus was human and he was God. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. Now, if we're ever going to get through this, we've got to get off of verse one. (laughs) Let's move on. Verse two. He said this, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Again, you see some similarities here, but what I love about this is at this point, he has yet to use the name Jesus 
and he's almost talking kind of like pulling them in with this, this encrypted, is he, where is he standing on this? Because he's talking about the word of life and the life and the eternal life, but he's referring to it as it, not Jesus, and, and it and that which, and, and it could be a little bit confusing on this. Except at the end of that, he says, it was that which was with the Father, and this life has appeared to us. Not just a life force that's in any living object, not just this spark of life, not just this breath of life. What he's saying is the word of life, the, the life, the eternal life, three times he uses that, is Jesus. And Jesus is eternal life. Now you gotta follow this because this is what separates Christianity from every other major world religion. Every other major world religion, the founder, the teacher, the guru, the, the prophet, whatever it was that, that's kind of the key leader in that, might say, I know the way to life, or I have found a path that you can follow to life, or I have acquired life. Jesus alone says, no, no, I am life. No other religious leader could say that. I am life. I am eternal life. John had heard him say, John had recorded these words when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or John chapter one, back to the gospel, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of man. Jesus is eternal life. And he just keeps referring to him at this point as life. The word, the word of life, the eternal life. Verse three, he said, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that, he says, let me tell you why I'm making such a big deal about this. The things I've heard, the things I've seen, the things about this word of life. Let me tell you why, so that, so that. What, so that you can have right theology? Yeah, that was part of it, no question. So that you can know the truth and get back on track? Absolutely. So that you can defend the faith and, and yes, yes, yes. But he says, that's not the goal of this. That is it's secondary. But the goal is personal. And we'll see this in just a second. He says, the goal is personal. It's fellowship. It's fellowship. Which you might be saying, well, no, wait a second. Why, why are we talking about fellowship? And here's one, of, here's one of the things that's a problem for us is that the word fellowship for us has um, been, I would say dumbed down, but I'm not sure that that's the right word. It's just become... Um, so, uh, so less rich than the original meaning of it, the word koinonia. For us, fellowship is, is we're gonna gather around and we're gonna have snacks and we're gonna have small talk. I, I grew up in a church where there was a fellowship hall because that's where you went, obviously, for fellowship. And there we had mother's assorted cookies and punch and little triangle sandwiches with the crust cut off, you know, made with that Oskemeyer meat spread. No wonder we all have cancer. And, and all this stuff, that that, 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 was, that was fellowship. And he said, no, 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 no. This word, this idea of koinonia, is so much deeper than just cookies and punch and social hour. Having a little ice cream social in the fellowship hall. You know, having the, the men's gathering and talking about the animals that they shot this year or, or the women having bunko. There's more to it than that. This fellowship, this koinonia, is doing life together, rejoicing in the victories, crying through the sorrows, 
working, encouraging one another, sharpening one another, admonishing one another. As, as Pastor Kim would say, it's in the mud and the blood together. You're doing life together. There's this unity. There's this community. There's this connection. And, and, and it's a deep, deep connection like family. He says, this is why I'm telling you this. The end of verse three. He says, so that, so that you also may have fellowship with us. To which they're going, okay, great. We get to be in a small group together. Wonderful. How's that going to work? You're on an island. We're in Ephesus. We don't have Zoom yet. How, we don't know. Fellowship with us. And I think he would say, no, no, no. You don't understand the with us part. I'm not just talking about me and a couple of buddies out here on the island. This with us, the fellowship with us, is so much bigger. I mean, it is almost, almost unbelievable. The us that I'm talking about. And here's where I believe from the very beginning, he is trying to reignite their zeal for Christ. He's trying to light a passion underneath them. Try to get them out of this complacency and this spiritual discouragement to see what they're a part of. He says, let me tell you, when I say fellowship with us, let me tell you what I'm talking about. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and here it is, and our fellowship, the fellowship with us that I'm talking about, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about a group of eight to 12 people. I'm talking about we have been invited in, we have been included in, we have been welcomed in to this community with the Father and with the Son and with the unity that they have experienced for all eternity, and they want us to be a part of this family. That's what we're talking about. This eternal life that is offered to us is life with Jesus. See, we think eternal life, we think numbers of years, we think linear, we think timeline. I remember when I was a, a, probably in grade, I had to have been in grade school, when I heard about the word Googleplex. Remember, anyone remember Googleplex? Googleplex was told to us that it was the largest number ever was Googleplex. And in our fourth grade wisdom, we'd go around the playground saying, I know a number bigger than Googleplex. Googleplex plus one. <laughs> Brilliant minds we were. We think of eternal life as Googleplex years of life, just year after year after year after year after year, and we've missed it all together. It's not about a quantity of life. It's about a quality of life, this life in fellowship with the Father, with the Son. That's why eternal life is not starting when we die. Eternal life is when we become one with Christ. Then we have eternal life. It, yes, it goes on forever, but it's this quality of life that we get to do fellowship. And he says, don't you understand? That's what you've been invited into. That's what you've been included into. What an honor, what a privilege, what an amazing thing to do life together with other believers, yes, and with Jesus right in our midst as a daily reality. Can I push pause here for a minute and just say, this thir uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting that we're in right now, this is the goal. The goal, more than anything else, is that we would grow deeper in our fellowship and union with Christ that we would say no to ourselves in order to say yes to Jesus. We would decrease, he would increase. That, that he would fill the hungry with good things and the good things are his, his own self with us. That we would grow in that. And so he comes to this, this group with this document. He says, listen, 
And I think he goes all Pastor Kip on him. If you get nothing else out of this document, get this. Jesus is divine and human. And I've seen him and I've heard him and I've touched him. And he is the word of life, life and eternal life. He is eternal life. And because of that, he invites us into a life with him. Get that. And it will help straighten out your theology and it will bring you out of your spiritual discouragement and it will change everything. So at the end of that little introduction, he just throws this one in, verse four. He says, we write this, here's another reason why we're writing this, to make our joy complete. Now, some of your translations may say, to make your joy complete. And some of your translations may say, to make our joy complete, with a little asterisk to say that in some translations it says, make your joy complete. <laughs> so which is it? Yes. All of the above, why not? Because when you understand this, here's this pastor that's out on an island that his heart is breaking. If you can get this right, his joy will be complete. Oh, yes. And if you get it right, all your spiritual discouragement, all of your confusion, that's gonna be straightened out. Your joy is gonna be complete. And the fellowship with the Father, his joy will be complete because you get it. But the result is this complete joy. This joy will be complete for us. Remember, we're talking about joy here, not happiness. Something much deeper, something that is unshakable. Joy. Happiness comes and goes with our circumstances. <laughs> there is a song that I was, I was taught when I was a kid in church, and I hope you weren't taught this song because it's so... I'm inside, outside, upside, downside, happy all the time. I'm inside, outside, upside. Anyone hear that song? Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, you get Jesus, and then it's inside, outside, upside, down. You know, it's like, come on. Life is real. Life is hard. There's difficulties. It doesn't mean that we're happy all the time, but we can have joy in the midst of it. A deep, unextinguishable joy. Remember who's writing this. John, this old man who's been banished to a barren island of hard labor. This man who's been persecuted because of his faith. This man who church tradition would say all the other disciples have been killed except for him. They've all been martyred except for him. A man whose heart is breaking because the church that he loved, that he poured into, that he, cared, that he saw his sons and daughters has been damaged and borderline destroyed by false teachers. There's a lot of hardship in his life. And yet, his joy is complete. And I gotta believe that he, knowing the scriptures, probably thinks back to what the psalmist wrote because it actually kind of falls in line with what he wrote. As he's out there on the island of Patmos, thinking, how do I have joy? Psalm 1611 says, you have made known to me the path of life. He knows the life. And you fill me with joy in my circumstances. No, that's not what he says. You fill me with joy when everything's going right. That's not what he says. You fill me with joy in your presence. 
with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He's lost everything, but the one thing that can never take, be taken away from him is fellowship with the eternal life, the source of his joy. Joy is not just when things happen right. Joy is in the midst of all the difficulties. That's why Paul would write, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And you look at what he went through, and he's still telling us, we can have joy in the midst of this. So here's John talking about joy being complete, and I've gotta believe he's again thinking about, what are the things I heard from Jesus? What are the things he taught? What are the things I wrote down? John chapter 15, and if you're doing our 21 days of prayer and fasting, you just read this passage yesterday with Pastor Randy's devotional. That Jesus said this whole idea of fellowship with him is like a vine and branches. I and you, you and me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You stay connected with me, you remain with me, you're gonna bear fruit. That's what it means, doing life together, not just someday when you die, but like here right now. And then at the end of it all, Jesus said this, and John had recorded these words. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The one thing that could never be taken from him was his source of life and his source of joy. And I wanna tell you, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. But in order for us to understand and experience that eternal life, to be able to dwell in that fellowship with the eternal life, to have that inextinguishable joy even in the hardships, it only happens when Jesus is at the center. When Jesus is at the center of your life. You see, 29 years ago, I basically preached that same message. And my prayer is that 29 years from now, if Jesus holds off, for those of us who are still alive, that we will still be putting Jesus at the center of our life, with eternal pleasures in his presence and joy, that Jesus will always be the center of this church and of our lives. In Colossians, Paul writes, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, we're only four verses into this thing, so it's gonna take us a while. But it is full of some of the deepest, richest theology you will ever hear and some of the most practical personal applications that can be challenging with the way we're called to live. And so my prayer for us is this, that this week, and as we're in our 21 days, that we will recognize that Jesus is our eternal life. And there is joy in that because we live in fellowship with him and with his people. Live in that reality, in this joy that is complete, regardless of your circumstances, in the reality of Christ.